Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Rob Porter on 970 WDYAM and 93.1 FM. We have a, uh, a very fun show coming up. A, a little bit of a food fight erupting between the legislature and Governor Doug Burgum. Uh, the legislature announcing that they uh, plan on suing Governor Burgum over his vetoes of some of their legislation earlier this year. Burgum suggesting the lawsuit is a waste of money. I'm going to explain it all to you because it's a little bit complicated. You may be wondering why a Republican legislature is suing a Republican government, and it's all to do with separation of power. So we'll talk about that in a moment. Also, Chancellor Mark Hagerot, who, of course, uh, I've been writing some stories about him lately that not very flattering for him. He survived a, uh, there was a meeting of the State Board of Higher Education today. He survived a challenge to his contract. There was uh, there was a motion made, uh, I, I think it was to go into executive session to discuss or, or to hold some sort of a special meeting uh, to discuss his contract situation, which he just had his contract, I, I think, renewed in June. So I, I don't know. I mean, to me, that, that seems like at least some of the board expressing at least some level of dissatisfaction with his job performance in the wake of a report from 2016, which came out, which indicated that he had a a number of problems with his job performance, including alleged gender bias. Um, Also coming out that, you know, he had fired Vice Chancellor Lisa Feldner. A lot of people upset about that. Some perceiving it as him uh, creating, uh, trying to create room in, in his budget for an acquaintance of his from the Navy. So, all of that going on, it was a it was a split vote, 4-4 of the State Board of Higher Education on whether or not to hold this meeting. So um, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. We'll talk about that more later in the show as well. Also in the second hour, State Senator Erin Oban is joining. Uh, we could probably talk with her a little bit, too, about this um, this lawsuit against Governor Burgum, uh, as well as the, um, the commission. The legislature has convened to review the initiated measure process. Uh, also, Public Service Commissioner Randy Crispin is going to join. Uh, some are saying that the Public Service Commission went too easy on energy transfer partners uh, after, you know, it was alleged that they had uh, not handled the discovery of historical artifacts along the route of the Dakota Access Pipeline appropriately. Uh, they ended up getting off, some say too light. We'll talk with Public Service Commissioner Randy Crispin about that. All that plus your phone call, 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll also be checking in with Jay Thomas, who is broadcasting live on remote from Speakeasy today. Uh, we'll be checking in with him throughout the hour. Um, so right now, let's talk about this lawsuit the legislature is filing against Governor Doug Burgum. Uh, Natil, does this surprise you that, that our Republican legislature is suing our Republican governor? I guess when you put it that way, it's surprising. But when you look at the what they're suing over, it's not as surprising. Yeah. So basically, I mean, this has been coming for a while, and I don't, I don't know how much of a surprise it, it is, really. But you know, essentially, the lawmakers arguing that Governor Burgum exceeded exceeded his his veto authority. Um, now, we had Senate Majority Leader Rich Wardner on this program back in June, and he told me that. Uh, Burgum had engaged in selective deletion and that they needed one more vote uh, before they actually filed a lawsuit. Uh, well, today they cast that vote and they voted to go ahead with a lawsuit. Uh, Burgum, in a press release, uh, saying that it isn't, quote, a prudent use of taxpayer dollars. Here's his full statement. Uh, as I've stated before, the intent of these vetoes was to protect executive branch authority, preserve the separation of powers, and prevent spending of scarce state resources without full legislative review. Uh, while we don't believe this lawsuit to be a prudent use of taxpayer dollars, we will respond accordingly to any legal action that attempts to infringe on executive branch authority. In the meantime, we remain squarely focused on reinventing government and being as efficient as possible with taxpayer dollars as we carry out the duties of the executive branch. Um, so, so here's what's going on. First of all, I, I think we need to understand the governor's veto authority, what it is. Uh, our state constitution in North Dakota, and this varies from state to state, but here in North Dakota, our state constitution says that the governor can veto any given piece of legislation outright. So no matter what it is, the governor can veto, and then the legislature has an opportunity to override that veto. But in addition to that, when it comes to appropriations bills, the governor can also deploy what's called a line item veto, which is essentially you you delete just parts of the bill while leaving the entire bill, the rest of the bill intact. Um, 
there's a limit to that, though. And there's a pretty good reason for the limit. It actually came from a 1979 Supreme Court case involving Democratic, uh, former Democratic Governor Art Link. Um, and in that case, what happened is the legislature appropriated money to create a new executive branch office under the lieutenant governor. Uh, and then or, or essentially the, the legislature appropriated money um, for, for, for an executive branch office. Uh, and what he did essentially is, is Governor Link vetoed the portion of the appropriation bill that created the new executive office and then just transferred that money into his own office, right? So instead of the legislation, when, once his veto was done, instead of the legislation um, creating a new executive branch office under the lieutenant governor, it instead put more money into his office budget. And the argument is it went all the way to the state Supreme Court. And the argument was is that by vetoing it in that way, Governor Link essentially changed the nature of the legislation. Now, that's that's the Rubicon that the governor cannot cross. The governor can veto legislation. The governor cannot write legislation. And so if the governor changes parts of a given bill that change the intent of that bill, make it a different sort of legislation then that's the governor legislating. And the governor doesn't have the authority to legislate. The legislature legislates. So uh, let, let's, let's do an example. Let's think about it this way. Say the legislature says um, the, that uh, they, they write in, in, in a bill, and, and the bill says uh, that they will fund 5000 they, they will not fund, um, you know, X amount of dollars for some new building. And the governor comes in and deletes the word not, and now it says they will fund a building, right? Well, now he changed that legislation, and that's legislating. I, I, I realize that this is all down in the weeds and a little esoteric, but that's essentially what's going on. So um, it went all the way, the, the, the Art Link veto went all the way to the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court ruled, I quote, that the governor may not, veto conditions or restrictions on appropriations without vetoing the appropriation itself. Now, the problem is, is Governor Burgum did that. Uh, Senate, as, as an example, Senate Bill 2003, which is the university system budget, as passed by the legislature, contained a section which requires that the new building projects uh, conform uh, to space utilization plans. Um, the intent was to check some of the unnecessary, unnecessary campus expansion uh, that's that's been taking place now what what Burgum did is he vetoed the restriction but he left in place the appropriation now that's the problem is they're essentially saying um he left the money in the bill but took out the part where the legislature said how the money was going to be spent so it's important that the governor have that sort of restriction on his veto authority because think about it this way what happens if the governor could just veto how the legislature says to spend the money but leave in place the money. It, it would essentially render the entire legislative budgeting process moot, right? Because if the legislature says, we're going to spend $500,000 for this, and the governor just takes out the this part and just says, we're going to spend $500,000, now it's just up to the executive branch to figure out how to spend that money. And that can't be, that's not a good separation of power. So I think this is a good lawsuit. Governor Burgum says it's a waste of money. I think he's wrong. What do you think? 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329. We're going to take a break. We'll check in with Jay at Speakeasy. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob. Report on 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM, 701-293-9000, If you want to join in, email talk at WDAY.com. So it's it's a little bit confusing what's what's going on with the legislature and Governor Burgum. But I, Governor Burgum, uh, first of all, I, I think we, we've also got to understand that, that our system of government, you know, the, the state government's essentially being modeled in, in a lot of ways after the federal government our system of government in inherently sets up friction and conflict between the legislative and executive branches of office that's that's by design our founders were, were very very worried about any one person or any one entity in government getting too much power 
So they separated the powers. And they set up the different branches of government to, to essentially squabble with one another over that power all the time. So from a certain perspective, although Governor Burgum is dismissing this as a, as a waste of taxpayer money, from a certain perspective, it's actually a very good use of taxpayer money. We should be having these debates. We should be having this friction. This is a healthy thing for our state government, is, is to constantly be uh, searching for and, and finding where those limits on legislative power are and where those limits on executive branch power are. Now, the governor says he's defending executive branch office, uh, executive branch power. That's good. But the legislature is defending legislative power, and they have really every 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 much the same amount of right as as, as the governor does to, to defend that power. Um, so so there's that. I I think just just to begin with, it's a healthy debate to have, um, and it's it's something that that really tr- transcends partisan politics. This isn't really about Republicans or Democrats or anything else. This is about the office of the governor and the legislature. That's that's really what this is about. Um. And then beyond that, I, I really do feel that Governor Bergen probably misused his vetoes. Now, I, I don't think that makes him a bad guy or anything. He just got a little carried away with exercising his executive branch office. And I think it's incumbent upon the legislature to take action to put some of that power back in the box. I don't want to live in a state where the governor can just because of the deal. That, that's literally what this means. The, the way Governor Bergen utilized his vetoes coming out of the 2017 session Part if that's allowed to stand. Part of what the implication is is that if the legislature says we're gonna we're gonna appropriate five hundred thousand dollars, and we want that money to be used on playground equipment in city parks, right? They they make that appropriation. Um, if this is allowed to stand, the governor could could just delete the part that says we're gonna use it for playground equipment in city parks, and just says we're gonna appropriate five hundred thousand dollars. Uh, to the the parks department or wherever they would be appropriating it to, and which point they could just use the five hundred thousand dollars for whatever they want, transferring the the budgeting authority from the legislature to the governor's office. I mean, if I were lawmakers, I w- I would not want that. Would you? No, absolutely not. And and it it makes a ton of sense in these specific instances that that we're seeing that the legislature would not want the governor to be able to do what he what he did. And I think you've mentioned it before, but I don't think, you know, I, I don't think the governor's trying to be malicious or anything like that. It's no. just, this is, this is a thing that happened and now it's got to be settled because we have realized that this is a problem. It is, it is part of the constant struggle between the executive and legislative branches. And, and a lot of times, you know, these little, a lot of times this is a very subtle game that gets played between the two branches of government. And I think it flies under most people's radar, but this one, you know, has flared up a, a little bit more, a little bit stronger, I, I think, than most. And, you know, we've got some eyeballs on it. And I, I think it's going to be a very instructive thing. And I think it's a very positive thing that's happening. I'm glad it's happening. And I should say that on the reverse side, I am glad that our governor has a line item veto. Um, I am glad that we don't have a situation like we do at the federal level where lawmakers can sort of tuck, uh, you know, funding for pet projects or, or things that maybe couldn't pass on their own muster. Uh, they can't tuck them into other appropriations bills and get them passed because the governor has a choice between, say, vetoing the entire, uh, I don't know, ag department budget or something like that and leaving them with no budget at all uh, and or you know, or or accepting that there's going to be this this appropriation within that budget that he might he or she may find objectionable. Like, I don't I am glad we have the line item veto. It's just that Governor Burgum used it inappropriately. He left in and he, he deleted legislative intent but left in place the, the the appropriation and essentially changed and turned the appropriation into a blank check and the legislature didn't intend to write a blank check and the governor doesn't get to just change bills like that because the governor is the executive the governor is not a legislator and i don't know maybe people think i'm just nerding out on this and i am a little bit because frankly i do enjoy stuff like this but um you know these these roles in our government are are very very important and the process of how we are governed is very, very important. And we should not lightly allow the process to, to, to be changed or, or allow someone to stray from that process and just set a precedent whereby, uh, you know, we're not going to follow the same process as we did in the past anymore. You know, I, I we, we have got to be careful about that. 701-293-9000 if you want to join in, 888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. So that's essentially what's going on with the veto thing. I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people out there were sort of scratching their heads wondering, 
what is going on with this? Well, that's that's it. The legislature says the governor overstepped his authority. The governor says, no, I, do, I didn't. I didn't do any such thing. Uh, and I guess the, the third branch of government is going to exercise their authority to settle this dispute between uh, the legislative branch and the executive branch. So we've got all three branches of government involved. And I think it's a beautiful thing, Natil. This is how it's all supposed to work. It is indeed working as it is intended to Just work. Just like it's- your civics class uh, drew it up. Uh, we're we're right back in the classroom. Where is it now, though, legally, like with the the legal process? Has it seen has it been put forth in front of any judges yet? Or is it well, still as really far fresh? as that, what's, what's been happening so far is like like the lawmakers took a vote back in June, I believe it was. And yeah, that vote this, was this essentially to authorize. Right. Essentially, that vote was 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 to authorize their lawyers to come up with a legal strategy. Like if, if we were to sue what exactly would we be arguing in court right like so so they voted they voted to give authority to the lawyers to say well well let's put a case together and then the vote today was okay well here's our case do we actually want to file this and so the vote today was we're going to file this so my understanding is at some point the legislature will file it in court at that point the executive branch will respond and then and then i believe this all goes straight to the supreme court um you know, because this obviously isn't a, a typical lawsuit. So that's that's where it's at today. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Chancellor Hagerot surviving by a, just a split vote, a, a challenge to his contract today. We'll talk about that coming up. 701-293-9000, email talk at wday.com. We'll be right back. Don't go away. You know, I, I haven't mentioned this until uh, Standing Rock Chairman David Archambault losing re-election last night. Yeah, I heard. Uh, I think um, I reported that this morning. I, I, I think I was among the first. Anyway, um, by, by a wide margin, too. I mean, uh, almost a, almost a two-to-one margin. Uh, losing to uh, Mike Faith is is the name of the gentleman who uh, is uh, going to be replacing him. Um I, I was talking to some of my sources down there, Standing Rock. You know, I, I think it's it's always dangerous, and we do this in politics, whether it's special elections, like in, like what we just saw down in Alabama or whatever. And we try to extrapolate from these local elections meaning for, for larger issues. And I, I, I think that's unfortunate because local elections tend to be complex things. People vote for a lot of different reasons, and it may not be the hot-button issue that, that you're thinking of that motivates people to vote a certain way. You know, particularly, I think even more so when you when you get into a you know a very a very small community like the Standing Rock Reservation. You know, I mean, we're we're talking about I, I think overall there were less than two thousand votes cast in in the chairman election. So, you know, that's that's a pretty small population um, of of people who are casting their ballots. And I, I think it's something like that. It's it gets very very complex. Even maybe more so than than in say a, a national presidential election where. You know, you're trying to appeal to such a massive base that the election tends to get sort of distilled down into a few basic themes or points. Honestly, in a lot of ways, I think local elections can can be a lot more complex. Um, so my, my sources down there saying it, it wasn't the protest specifically that was Archambault's problem. They, they said really that the larger issue, and it, and it is still somewhat protest related, was they wanted somebody who can maybe repair relations with the state of North Dakota and and the federal government and, and North Dakota's federal delegation, you know, and, and they just, I, I what I am being told, and, and again, this is just, you know, sort of what I have heard, and it may not apply to every voter or, or most of them, but but what people are telling me from down there is that they felt they needed, the, the tribe needed a leader who, who maybe didn't, that Archibald had lost because of his participation in, in the protest had lost some of his credibility to be able to work with the state and be able to work with, the federal government so they wanted basically a, a fresh face somebody new and that's that's what they got so um interesting leadership changing up down there and, and hope for the best and, and also it's some interesting comments as well the new guy coming in saying you know he did feel although he didn't know that the, the protest was necessarily the the hot button issue of the election he did say he felt the protest distracted the tribe away from some of the things they should have been 
they felt were, were more pressing to, to focus on, like housing and, and some of the poverty and crime and health issues uh, on the reservation, um, which, I don't know, makes a lot of sense to me. 701-293-9000, uh, Let's talk about Chancellor Mark Hagerot. Now, Natil, I've written some pretty negative stories about this guy recently. And uh, he came on this show, and he defended himself. And I, I still think that was a little bit of an odd interview. It was very hard to get him to answer questions. It seemed like he kept diverting off. He kept talking about Minot for some reason. And I think he knows I'm from Minot and kept bringing up Minot like he had some special. I, I don't know if that was supposed to placate me or, or what the point of that was. But that was a tactic that he took. And now he's out there saying that, that all of his problems stem from some political cabal that was upset because he didn't uh, discipline Ed Schaefer in June of 2016 uh, when Schaefer, while interim president of the University of North Dakota, endorsed Doug Burgum in that very heated Republican primary between him and Attorney General Wayne Stengem. Um Now, I don't doubt that, you know, there, there, were, there were absolutely people who were upset about Schaefer endorsing Stengem. Uh, there were people who contacted members of the university system about that and expressed their deple- displeasure to one extent or another, uh, and if if and and all of that is fine. I, I mean, I personally, I didn't have a problem with Schaefer endorsing Bergam. I thought that was just fine. Um, I didn't. Uh, I don't even have a problem with legislators feeling that that's a, or legislators or anybody else for that matter though feeling that Schaefer what Schaefer did was inappropriate. Um, you know, those are both I think valid opinions. I hold one, others hold another one. I think that if somebody crossed the line, say a lawmaker crossed the line and said, well, we're upset with you and now we're going to take it out on the university system budget, I think that is also inappropriate. I think that's very inappropriate. And, you know, if a lawmaker said that, shame on them. But I think Hagerot's been out and he's, he's demanding an investigation and he's he's you know, saying that it was political, you know, inappropriate political pressure on his office and everything, and that there's now some sort of a gotcha game going out there. And and there are certainly commentators in the state who are feeding into that, other radio show hosts or whatnot that are are gobbling that up, either because they don't understand enough about this issue and, and they see everything through that sort of partisan political lens that they're just going to go down that road. Uh, and then also, I mean, let's 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 face it, a member of the State Board of Higher Education, who, by the way, was the chairwoman of the board at the time that this went down, Kathy Nesset, is a potential challenger for Heidi Heitkamp in the 2018 election. If you don't think that some of the partisan commentators out there aren't very much aware of that and very much looking to play that angle, uh, I got a bridge to sell you because that's absolutely part of what's going on. Now, personally, I think... what Hagerot's doing is he's trying to, to, to create that. He's trying to feed into that circus. He's trying to create a distraction to move focus away from what are some very disturbing reports about his job performance. Gender bias being one, uh, inappropriate comments to staff being another, his demeanor with staff being another, uh, his lack of attention to the fullness of his job, too, being too focused on cybersecurity and, and other pet projects uh, while – uh, you know, he should be focused elsewhere. So a lot of that is going on right now. Uh, so, you know, a lot of that is going on with, with Hagerot, and I, th- I think he's wanting to distract from it. So he goes out and he calls for an investigation. Now, the problem with his narrative that, that all of his problems are sort of stemming from uh, this, this, you know, political pressure that in turn comes from, you know, his lack of action against Schaefer for that endorsement, problematic for that is is the timeline of this. If he felt that that was so overwhelmingly uh inappropriate uh and he was so fearful of it that that he now feels it deserves an investigation by a specially appointed ag by the way is is what uh a counsel for, for the attorney general's office which by the way is what he called for and the attorney general's office said no uh if he felt it was so appropriate why didn't he raise that call back in 2016 when this happened Right? Why did he allow us, if, if he's saying that legislators were out making threats about, uh, you know, funding for higher ed, then why didn't he do something about that before the legislators was, went into session and could have carried through on those threats? Why bring it up now? And, you know, I, I think it's not hard to say, well, you bring it up now because he's in trouble now. He's in hot water now and he needs a distraction. So now he wants an investigation. That's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is I have emails, I have documents which show that he was being mentored for these problems, for, in a, for, for talking inappropriately to staff about things like their appearance, their weight, their politics, their gender. 
their attractiveness. He was being mentored for that months before Ed Schaefer endorsed anybody. So, so, so to suggest that this is all just some, you know, this is just Republican politics and, and political retaliation against Hagerot for whatever reason is baloney. Months before the Republican primary, he was already having problems. And so today at the State Board of Higher Education, there is an attempt to initiate a special meeting to review his contract, which, by the way, was just was just reviewed back in June. Board member Mike Ness says that he wanted a special meeting in the future to do this. And the only you, they needed a majority vote on the board to move forward with that sort of a special meeting. And it was a split vote. That's very very close. That's and I don't I don't think the chancellor's out of the woods yet. Hey, we're going to go ahead uh Jay uh we're going to hear from Jay. He's over at uh, speakeasy. We'll hear from that. Plus your phone call, 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Port on 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. If you want to join in, 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. We've been talking about Chancellor Hagerot, who survived a uh, an effort on, on the board to, to take another look at his contract, which, by the way, was just renewed in June. That's a big, big deal. I don't think this guy's out of the woods yet. Um and I'm, I don't know. I mean, I haven't made up my mind. I honestly don't know w- what we ought to do with this guy. I can tell you one thing. He, he's better figure out how to handle the pressure a little better because the way he's at now, he's having meltdowns. He's screaming at staff. He's slamming books. Uh, he's making derogatory comments. When a reporter puts in a request, an open records request, um, you know, th- this guy gets a little heat from the media, and now he's demanding investigations and he's off the rails. I, I think – Either this guy figures out how to do his job and do it diligently uh, and, and treat his staff appropriately uh, and, and not, not go off the rails every time something negative happens. And, and by the way, focus on his entire job and not just his pet projects. Uh, if, if he can do that, then I say, yeah, let's keep him. He has done some other good things. But if he can't focus on his job and he can't get past some of this, then, you know, we may have to hire yet another chancellor, which sucks because of all the constant turmoil around this office but we got to get somebody good in there karen's got a call karen what's up well since i'm only a female and may or may not be pretty enough i'm not sure if my opinion counts as much but it counts he sounds like just a bigoted person well and, and let's let's be clear what we have are we have at least a documentation of at least two instances where uh, the leadership of the university system has felt that uh, Hagerot needed counseling over his treatment of staff. Among that, uh, the the suggestion that he treats male staff differently than female staff, that he he values them more or just treats them differently. Um, now that's inappropriate. Um, we should all be treated equally in the workplace. Um, or at least we shouldn't be treated differently based on gender. Job performance and things like that obviously are going to factor in, but uh, your gender shouldn't matter in terms of how you're treated by your boss. Uh, and and it's and that those now what we have are accusations against Hagerot. We certainly don't have any smoking guns, but we have a lot of allegations. As a Democrat, I believe everybody's inner self is what's more important whether they're male or female, and uh, that's what's first for me. Yeah, I, I think we should all be treated equally. I, I don't think that's a Republican or Democrat point of view. I think that's just that's just being a good person. You know, you treat people the same. Karen, thanks for the call. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. Um, I'm not sure. I, I just I, I don't I don't know what the end game is going to be. With uh, with Chancellor Hagerot, I have a feeling. I I know I'm working on some things. Um, 
I don't. I don't know that this guy's been doing that good of a job. I, I think he's been a little too focused on his pet projects. I think his demeanor with his staff has been erratic. It's not been good. I'm hearing a lot of negative things about him, and and I I think a lot of people when he came in the office because of all the turmoil we had over past chancellors, all of the controversy and scandal and everything that we've had in the university system, and goodness knows we've had a lot of it. I've written about a lot of it. I've broken a lot of those stories. I'm very very aware of it. I think a lot of people. I, I know I was one of them. Really wanted this guy to succeed. Really wanted this guy to come in and just do a bang up job. And, and not even, nobody's expecting him to be Superman. Just come in and, you know, calm the waters. Just be a workhorse. Just, just do your job and, and let's cut through a lot of the extracurricular food fighting and everything else. And it just, it seems like he's, I don't know if he's going to be capable of it. You know, and, uh, they always say that the right, and you've heard this, Nathiel, the first step to solving a problem is admitting that you have a problem, right? Absolutely. I think the chancellor is maybe in that spot. I think it's maybe time for him to admit, you know what? I uh, I got some things I need to change. I got some stuff I need to fix. And maybe he needs to to, to stop, you know, this this fight he's going to pick with the legislature. Because, listen, I'm, I'm sorry. You are the head of a publicly funded institution. You rely on a budget that's appropriated by the legislature. The legislature is an inherently political body. Politics are the means by which we govern our state and our country. You're going to have to deal with some of these people. And sometimes they're going to say and do things that make you angry or that maybe you feel are inappropriate. And, and the way he's handling it has not been good. Even if even if he felt he was, he was and, and he really was, under undue political pressure, then it's on him that he waited until now to say something about it. That's on him. And I'm not making any excuses from any legislator out there who's making threats against the higher ed budget because Ed Schaefer endorsed Doug Burgum instead of Wayne Stengem. If some lawmaker was out there was doing that, shame on them. We ought to reveal who it is so that, you know, that person's constituents can be aware of it and vote accordingly. I'm not making excuses for anybody. But Hagerot doesn't get to use that as a shield. Hagerot doesn't get to use that as an excuse for his own behavior. So I don't know. Here we go again, I guess. Uh, people, people are laughing. Like when this, when I started writing about these stories, what, two weeks ago now? People are laughing. I mean, here we go again. I, I, I guess things were getting boring. We needed another higher ed scandal. And I, I'll tell you, I wasn't looking forward to it. I don't particularly enjoy writing these stories. I, I wish that, that the universities that we could just get down, people could just set their egos aside and we could just get down to the work of providing an efficient and, and, and high quality education to our kids because that's what the university system is supposed to do. We have so many egos. It's such a sprawling system. We have so many political agendas. And by the way, that's the big laugher here. The idea of, of, of political influence in the, in the, in the university system. There is no place where the politics are more vicious than in the higher education system. There just isn't. It is vicious, and it doesn't come from our politicians. It comes from an utter lack of accountability to anybody who was elected of the people. None of these people are, are report to anybody who was elected of the people, and I think that's a big part of the problem. More to come straight ahead. Second hour, we're going to talk with State Senator Aaron Oban. We'll talk a little bit more about this lawsuit over Governor Burgum's vetoes with Aaron. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, her her inclusion on a, on a commission that, that's reviewing the initiated measure process. Also, Public Service Commissioner Randy Crispin. This is the Rob Report on 970 AM and 93.1 FM. Don't go away. Welcome back. Second hour of the Rob Report today. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. You know, earlier in the program, we talked um, uh, we, we talked a little bit about it. My, my guest right now is State Senator Erin uh, Oban. She is a Democrat from Bismarck. And uh, I, I had her on because I want to talk about this initiated uh, measure commission and and some of the changes or what what may be considered in, in terms of reforms to the initiative measure process but before we get to that and i'm, I'm going to surprise aaron with this a little bit i guess because earlier in the program we were talking about 
the decision by the legislature to, to sue Governor Doug Burgum over some uh, vetoes issued by his office after the 2017 legislative session. Uh, and Senator, you you voted on uh, on the Legislative Management Committee on that issue. How did you vote, and why did you vote that way? Uh, hi, Rob. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> I'm, we're jumping right into good. it here. So. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. Um, yes, I was on Legislative Management this morning. Yes, I did uh, take a vote on that decision. And I, I actually started um, in my comments before that vote uh, by saying it may surprise everybody in this room as much as it surprises me, but much of what Representative Al Carlson said in his motion to proceed with litigation, I agreed with. Um, this is one of those issues I found really challenging because I, I see uh, justification in both a yes or a no vote. I felt like we had another option, and I felt like that option was a veto override session and to use one of our extra days to do that. Um, I, I, after listening to the discussions that I was a part of, I felt like that was the better option, frankly. Um, but the vote uh, was, I believe, 12 to 4 um, to proceed with litigation. And now, obviously, I am on the side of the, uh, the legislative um, side of that, of that case. And um, I, will, I, I guess I'll move forward with the team. I, I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, really, these I, I think sometimes we view all politics through the Republican or Democratic lens. And, and really, to me, this is this is more of a separation of powers thing. And, oh, and a lot of times when, when, it's, when it's this sort of a debate, those those maybe traditional partisan fault lines, they, they reorganize themselves. And then different people well, have different yeah, opinions I, about you where. Can see that, yeah, you can see that in the way the vote came down. Um, right. I, I voted with three uh, Republicans. Um, the three Democrats who sit on, on the Legislative Management Committee with me voted um, with that majority opinion. And um, sometimes, like you said, sometimes this stuff isn't partisan. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just where you feel. Um, I think there is a case to be made about, and I said this in committee, about protecting the authority of each branch of government. Um, I think there's also some, something to be said about the way um, the past has shown in the way we spend resources on litigation and how successful or unsuccessful the state has been in doing that. Um, so at a time when yeah. we're struggling to, to pay the bills, I feel like the people of North Dakota want us to pay. This didn't rise to the top for me. Yeah, well, Governor Burgum certainly made that point as well. He didn't feel it was a prudent use of taxpayer dollars. But mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not sure I agree because I, you said you, you thought that a a, a – an override session, basically legislature calls itself back into session, which frankly, there's, there's mm -hmm. a cost to that as well. But the legislature yeah. ca calls itself back into session and, uh, and then you hold a, a veto override vote. I, I guess the reason why I don't like that is I feel like there's a point of law to be settled here and a veto override sure. session doesn't necessarily settle that point of law. Going to, to mm -hmm. our third branch of government and having them weigh in would hopefully then settle that point of law about whether or not what Governor Burgum did was was legal. Because what I'm afraid of here is, is right. what the governor's done is he's he set a precedent where he took out legislative in, in one of the, I think it was the university system budget, took out legislative intent but left in an appropriation. If, if governors are allowed to do that, then why even have the legislature budget? I mean, at that point, the uh, governor could just veto all legislative intent and right. just spend the money however the hell he wants. And again, Rob, I, I actually, I don't disagree with that argument. Um, this This was... A serious battle for me on a yes or no, which, you know, yeah. when it comes down to it, you have you have to make a decision. And um, you know, I could read the writing on the wall. Um, I knew this was going to proceed. Whether it was going to proceed, you know, with or without me, it, it wasn't necessary. I had to decide what I felt was best in representing the people that I'm elected to re represent. And that yeah. said, I can I can completely understand why this decision has been made to move forward. So yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think it's the right decision, and I'm honestly, I'm looking, and I'm also a, just a total nerd about this stuff, and I just like the, the yeah. I mean, the some list. of this stuff is so in the weeds that people like you and me find it super interesting. Yeah, <laughs> um, everybody else is like, rolling their you eyes. Know, this this is the first time this is happening in many decades, so clearly yeah. it's it's to be taken seriously, and I think that will that will be done. So let's go to what I actually invited you on the show to talk about, which is sure. this initiated measure commission, which which met mm -hmm. earlier this week. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and one of the focuses on this coming out was a focus on out-of-state money. And I think a big reason of that was the Marzi's Law bill. I think that's sort of the big example of yeah. where you have a billionaire in California who pretty much exclusively funded an initiated measure campaign in North Dakota and successfully amended our state constitution. 
it seems like the early talk out of the commission is is trying to curtail or or inhibit in some way out of state donations, which I I gotta say leaves me feeling. I don't like that idea. In fact, I'm not even sure that would <laughs> that would stand to, to constitutional scrutiny. But is that yeah. what I mean? Tell, tell us what's what's coming out of this. Well, I mean, I think you've summarized it pretty well in the different perspectives that are coming into this committee. Uh, I mean, I will be completely upfront. I voted against this commission to begin with because I didn't think there was a whole lot of changes to the process that um, should be made. I believe in the initiated measure and referral process. Um, I believe that is the most direct democracy we have, and and North Dakota is has become kind of one of the few states that still has that. Yeah. Then there are people who came in wanting to talk about the amount of money um, that goes into these initiated measures. Sometimes, sometimes not. I mean, you can look right. at, you know, the medical marijuana measure did not have much money right. at all behind. Maybe it. they should have had, had more money. They would have written support. it a little bit better. Um. Yes, I mean we can certainly get into that, but <laughs> well, okay, um, let's 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 stay focused. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I mean I agree with you. I don't think there's a whole hell of a lot we can do about about the money that flows into um, campaigns, whether that is individual candidate campaigns or whether that is initiated yeah. measure campaigns. And frankly, I don't think we should talk about trying to limit um, out of state contributions into an initiated yeah. measure any more so than not we would limit. talk about not not limit. I, I think there are things. I, I, and I, I thought, you, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I, I think you made a really important point, though, in that I, I don't necessarily want to limit, but I think there are things we could do to, to do more reporting, uh, mm-hmm. report more. I mean, more often, I, I think it would be a big thing with initiative sure. makers. They don't report very often throughout the cycle. I mean, I don't understand right. why we're not reporting like every week or every other week. We live in a digital age. Yeah. This is not that yeah, hard. You, you won't find me arguing with that. I think the more transparency we have in that, the better, because if people – if people want to make a decision on whether or not they feel outside influences are trying to change an election in North Dakota, then they need to at least have that information right. in a in a period of time that allows them to make that decision. So I, I think that's fine. And it was well publicized that, that Henry Nicholas was was basically exclusively by myself and others was was mm-hmm. basically exclusively funding this initiated measure thing. And, and the voters didn't yeah. seem to care that much. So, yeah, um, I, I guess that is what it is. What about other factors? Because I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a fan of the initiative measure process. Yeah, I don't think yeah. I don't I don't see the virtue in direct democracy. I think sometimes voters, <laughs> I think sometimes voters That's struggle you're to understand. Majority under- sometimes in your opinion, Rob. So as somebody who often, you know, I mean, I'm admittedly in the minority. That's what I am as a Democrat in North Dakota, right. and that's fine. But I believe again, I don't think I'm in the majority on this. I, I in objecting to direct democracy, I don't sure, think I'm in sure. the majority. I think I'm very <laughs> yeah. much in the minority. Um. You know, to me, again, it's it's a little bit of that balance of power thing that we were talking about earlier. Um, now, there is an argument to be made that um, if the public is very unhappy with the policies that are being passed by the legislature, they should be electing a different legislature. Right. However, um, you know, we have also found, okay, so we'll just use the blue laws for an example. How many times are we going to have that discussion in the legislature? Um, right. Leave it as is when... You know, I just don't feel like the public is on the legislature's side of this one. I, well, I agree um, with you. I, I don't understand why yeah. we didn't change the blue laws. That surprised <laughs> yeah. me. The, the House did their job. I don't know what ha- I don't know what happened in the Senate. <laughs> Things went off the rails. Uh, yeah. um, well. But the I, okay. So, but here, here's the thing, and and I, I wonder about this because what you made a really interesting point where you're saying, well, if if you don't like what the legislature's doing, then then you know elect different legislators. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that maybe because we have the initiated measure process that takes some of the pressure? off lawmakers where if they're not listening to their they could they can be less responsive because the citizens could just they have this outlet they could just go do it themselves so we end up leaving in place people who without the initiated pressure the uh, initiated mm-hmm. measure process there might be more pressure to replace them you know i've never thought about it like that but i you know i yeah. suppose that that could be one one take on it i, I mean i think do you think people do you think bit, the people who voted hard, for the it's hard to, to get enough to, to yeah. really get that manpower out sometimes, or woman power, yeah. um, to collect all the signatures that are required, even though the threshold in North Dakota is relatively low, just because we have a low population. But what um, if you raise you know, it, then the only people, work. yeah, and if you raise the threshold, then the only people who can meet it are the deep pockets, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're going to make mm-hmm. it harder for the volunteer people, but for the rich sure. people who could just yep. hire signature collectors, they're still going to be able to get there. What about? I mean, here's here's my problem. When you're talking about, let's say, Marzi's Law or even the medical marijuana bill, these these were very Mm -hmm. long-initiated measures, very involved Mm -hmm. pieces of policy. 
Do you think most of the people who voted for them read them? I, I mean, can I can I make assumptions? Yeah, I can. I mean, I've heard as a part of this commission a lot of really broad brushes about voters not being educated. I mean, again, if we're going to paint with those broad brushes, those same voters are electing you guys, you know, the people sitting yeah. at the table. So let's let's be careful. A but I think bit. it's. I, no. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. But I mean, what we're talking about is, I mean, you, you go in, you go in on election day and your ballots got national races. You've got yeah. statewide races. Yep. You've got yep. local races. And now you've got a half a dozen ballot measures, some of which have are very complicated and have wide reaching ramifications. Uh-huh. And we're expecting voters to be up on all of that. Right, right. I mean, the the average person has far better things to do in their day, I think, to, to try to understand, even if they did sit down and read it all, Rob. You and I have spent time, like, you know, looking at century code, and that language is not always easy to understand. Yeah. So even if they sat down and read it all, that doesn't mean that there is a firm grasp. Even well, yeah. the legislature makes mistakes all the time and has but to. But we're going to let them vote on it anyway. With sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I guess <laughs> that's that's the thing I keep running Here, into. Okay. And listen, I so, mean, so I, that's let's, let's get down to where I think there can actually be some solutions. Okay. okay. Um, I think we should give people access to professionals who know how to draft language that fits into century code. Now, whether or not you agree with that language is neither yeah. here nor there. How that, how that access to those professionals looks is debatable. But Can I, maybe what we should do is, ma- is yeah. make sure that if we're going to be voting on language, let's make sure it's good language. <laughs> how, about, how about this? What, what if we didn't vote on language at all? What, what, if, what if an initiated measure had to be boiled down to just like a broad question? For instance, like with medical marijuana. Concept? Yeah, so, so like medical marijuana. Sure. Should it be legal yeah. in North Dakota, yes or no? The voters respond, yes or no, hmm. simple question, and then the legislature fills in the blanks. The people who are elected of the, the, the people fill in the blanks. They have a mandate from the ballot saying mm-hmm. you have to legalize medical marijuana, figure it out. I think that that is something worth discussing. I think you, know, you should take I, that I, to I, the commission I, and I introduce it. See, you know, how, how, would that, <laughs> how would that boil down in the end? Um, yeah. But is it something I think is worth discussing? Sure. All right. Well, I look forward I to you bringing it up at the next commission really meeting. <laughs> was giving people access to medical marijuana. I don't think yeah. that. I mean, I look forward to you going into the commission and saying, "Not how to make that happen." I'm looking forward to you going into the next commission meeting and saying, "Rob Port and I were having a really good. <laughs> he had a great <laughs> idea, and I really <laughs> want to push I've this." I've agreed with Al Carlson and I've agreed with Rob Port. I think well, we should maybe just close shop for the day now. Let's let's <laughs> let's wrap this up, Aaron. Thanks for your yeah. time. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it. Have a good day. That's State Senator Aaron Oban. We'll uh, continue right after this. this. Is the Rob Report on 970 WDAY AM and 93.1 FM? Don't go away. Rob Report on 970 WDAY AM and 93.1 FM. 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329, email talk at WDAY.com. I, I think that's just an interesting thing. You know, people say a lot of things about direct democracy and it's it's closest to the people and everything, Natil. But I I think what gets lost in that, because we all, we're all just supposed to nod our head, right? So they say, oh, well, it's democracy. Well, it's not our heads. Oh, well, that must be a good thing if we just let all the people vote on these very complicated issues on the statewide ballot. And I think what people don't think about when they say stuff like that or they just sort of automatically agree with it is, is as a practical matter, how does that play out on the ballot? And the way I see it pl- playing out is voters being confronted with some very complex policy proposals that they really don't know that much about and they end up just kind of voting randomly on them or voting on impressions of these bills that may not be accurate or may not you know, consider all, all the various ramifications for, 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 for the legislation. I, I think I think legislating at the ballot box is just an inherently bad way to make policy. I just do. I don't know. I, I wish I wish as as a practical matter people would consider that because it's it's not sure I'm not sure direct democracy is just automatic in fact I know direct democracy is not just automatically this good thing. It's not. And I'm not saying that because voters are stupid. I'm not saying that because uh, you know, I, I just I just think a lot of times voters don't have time to get informed on 
you know, a, a, a dozen or a half dozen candidates and, uh, you know, a half dozen ballot measures, too. You just they don't have time. And yet we're asking them to decide these things. I don't think that's a reasonable thing to do. So I like my idea of, of broad concepts, right? Like, like, you know. What, what's are, are we going to legalize, uh, you know, prostitution in North Dakota? Yes or no? And then we vote, and then whatever that vote, if it's no, then fine. That's the answer. And if it's yes, then okay, legislature, figure out how we're going to do it. I think that's a way to – I would be very interested in having more discussion about that. Hey, Public Service Commissioner Randy Crispin coming up next. Uh, Chairman David Archambault and the Standing Rock Tribe not happy with the way the PSC handled a, a recent uh, hearing with Energy Transfer Partners, the folks behind the Dakota Access Pipeline. We'll talk about it next on The Rob Report, 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report on 970 WDY AM. 93.1 FM. Going to be talking in a moment here to Public Service Commissioner Randy Crisman. Your call-in numbers, if you want to join the program, 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. Um, so the, in, in the ongoing sort of wrangling over the Dakota Access Pipeline, which is operating now, um, there were allegations by state regulators that the energy transfer partners broke some rules during the Dakota Access Pipeline. One in, in that they hired, uh, they, they handled a, a situation where they, they ran across some historical artifacts that they, they handled that the wrong way. Uh, and two, that they did some, some tree removal that they, they shouldn't have. And, and I guess we can, if, if I'm, am I summarizing that? We'll, we'll talk with our, uh, our guest public service commissioner, Randy Crispin, right now. Uh, Randy, am I, am I summarizing that those were the two issues? Uh, yes, you're pretty close. Uh, there, there was also some uh, allegations of uh, topsoil and subsoil uh, getting mixed as well. Okay. So, so, so those are the allegations. Now, you, you guys came out, and, and essentially your response, because initially there was talk of, like, fines and stuff, but ultimately you decided that the company should have to do what? Uh, we came up with kind of a, a, a complex settlement that I, I, I'm glad to have for the opportunity to explain. If I could, Rob, can I take a minute to explain how our process works? And then Absolutely. I think it all makes more sense. Absolutely. Okay. So when we do uh, approve a, a bigger project, like a large uh, power line or a pipeline like this, in, in many cases, we will hire a third-party inspector. They're not out there 24/7, but but they, they monitor the work of the of the of the the construction. And uh, in most cases, if they see something going wrong, it's to avoid mistakes. However, if the company does something wrong that uh, now is in the past tense, uh, they can bring a complaint case to us. When they would when they would bring an allegation in, then we would assign some staff to take care of that case, and we kind of separate ourselves because we're a quasi-judicial agency. We as commissioners are going to have to make a decision on this, so we can't really be like the prosecutor would be. So our staff, we call them advocacy staff, works with that third-party contractor, brings a case to us. And, and that's what we had happen here, and then we make a decision like an impartial judge would make when, when a prosecutor would bring a case. And, and so here... There were kind of two different categories. You mentioned the rock harms. That kind of came to light almost a year ago already. And now some people are going to think that we let the company off way too easy. I think those are generally folks who didn't want to build in the first place and are just looking for a pound of flesh. And there are some who are who think that we are, are being much too hard on a company that invested a billion dollars in the North Dakota. I think uh, we got it just about right here. So with the rock cards a year ago, here's what happened. They, they come along. This was not found in the, the pre-construction survey. They ran into an unanticipated uh, rock feature, and they notified the State Historic Preservation Office, got a preservation officer out there, advised them on what to do. They roped it off. They went around it, never disturbed it. You'd think handled absolutely perfectly. However, in their approval to build this project from us, they were 
they had it made known to them clearly they needed to notify us also, the PSC, of unanticipated uh, discoveries of, of cultural resources like that. They never notified us. It was our third-party officer, the inspector, that, that pointed it out. Now, it might seem kind of trivial in that they did notify someone from, quote-unquote, the state, and they didn't destroy it. What's the problem, right? Well, the problem is if, if we don't do anything about this, uh, then that would send the message that nobody needs to notify us. And, and during the course of construction, we get calls from people that see something, and if we don't know what's going on out there, we're just not doing our job. So we need to enforce these things. But but the bottom line on that one is they did they handled it perfectly as far as not destroying it. They just only notified the historic office, not us. Then the second group uh, in the you know later after everything was pretty well done, the third party con- uh, inspectors notified us of of a number of instances where some trees were destroyed uh, that were outside of the right-of-way line and a few instances where they saw topsoil and subsoil mixed. So, so if, if we take this all the way through in a case, our only option is a civil penalty, which would go to the state general fund. Uh, we cannot force them to plant a tree or to go out and fix uh, a place where soil was mixed and is not going to grow properly or anything like that. All we can do is assess a civil monetary penalty. Um, well, let me, let me, let me read to you. I mean, the, the, the reason, yeah, the, the, well, the reason I had you on, and, and I wanted, this is from the Associated Press. Uh, I quote, the leader of the Standing Rock Sioux and an attorney for private North Dakota landowners believe the builder of the Dakota Access Pipeline got off too lightly when it settled allegations by state regulators that it violated rules during construction. I continue from the article, ETP is not required to admit any liability, which irks Standing Rock Sioux Chairman David Archibald, who believes the state is allowing the company to fool everybody. Uh, he says, the cost of their unlawful behavior, their unjust behavior, are insignificant compared to what their gains are going to be from the $3.8 billion pipeline, he said. The pipeline began moving North Dakota oil through South Dakota and Iowa uh, on June 1st. Uh, and then you have uh, uh, Derek Broughton, who is an attorney for, for private landowners and, and sort of one of these activist attorneys that get involved in a lot of these things. Uh, he says, uh, I quote, that he is nervous about the message this sends to other applicants, particularly because... Uh, I have landowners with interest in lands affected by other pipelines with signing applications before the PSC. Uh, Archambault continues, this is all disturbing to me. It seems like when the tribes speak, nobody listens. But when somebody else says something, the state listens. Now, those are those are the accusations being made that, that you guys essentially let the pipeline company off light without even having to admit any liability. What's your response to that? Well, I'll, I'll go through what the, the settlement actually calls for them to do. And, and I think uh, we'll see that. So we're actually protecting the, the landowners in these counties probably more than, than the attorney that represented a few of them, and, and that, that they did not uh, get off lightly. Uh, like I said, all we could do had we gone further with it would have been to assess a civil penalty, would have not fixed anything. What the company, rather than admit guilt and, and go through a, a lengthy hearing process, what, what they're doing in this settlement case is several things. Uh, first of all, they're going to prepare a manual and do some presentations at future oil and gas conferences uh, to help other companies learn from some of the things that happen on this case uh, to avoid these types of things and better understand the process to make sure these, these things don't happen. Uh, we have a, really essentially a contract here that if there are issues with growth on some of these areas of land where, where some soil got mixed or, or allegedly got mixed, that uh, they need to come back, work with, with our agency as well as the landowner on coming up with a resolution. And probably the, the biggest thing that drew the most attention is the trees. Um, and typically when, when trees are destroyed in a project like this, they have to replant them in a two-to-one ratio because you know that some are going to die. Um, in these areas where these allegations were, they have to switch to a three-to-one ratio. And in addition to that, plant another 20,000 trees working with the, the soil conservation districts in these seven counties. Um, you can imagine, I, I, can't, I can't imagine, I guess, that you can get a two-year-old tree even in volume for much less than $5 a piece. So you can see where this would quickly add up into the, into the six-figure uh, cost amounts for the company. So it's not exactly like they're, they're um, getting off easy, but the important thing to me is 
that the things that are being done here, instead of just a civil penalty that goes into the general fund of the state and, and hardly becomes noticeable in a $5 billion state budget, uh, these trees are going to be planted, the soil is going to be monitored, and the training is going to take place in these counties that were actually impacted. And so there's going to be a lot of good come of this rather than, like I say, just issuing a penalty and making them grovel and say the words, I'm guilty. Well, I think that's ultimately the, the focus on getting the right outcome as opposed to maybe getting retribution, maybe. Is that the right word? I don't know if that's the right word or not. But, I, I mean, to me, I, I, I that, that seems to be an approach. I think it's what yeah. some folks on that side of the argument are suggesting. And like I say, there are two sides because I have uh, drawn criticism that uh, that uh, this company put a billion dollars into the state and, and, and you're penalizing them because they only notified the Historical Society and forgot to tell you when they had done the right thing and avoided the cultural resource. But like I say, it is really important for the next project that, that we want to see constructed possibly uh, that the landowners know that we are watching these things and there are consequences to the company if they don't do it right. And that is what happened here. Um, clearly, they didn't save any money by not calling us when they found that rock feature because they had went through all the process of avoiding it. And, and like I said, notified the historical people. They didn't benefit from that, but it's costing them here. And and so, you know, in everything put together, I think this settlement does a great job of uh, sending the message, not only energy transfer partners, but every other company that's going to operate here, that the rules need to be followed or there are consequences. And in this case, the consequences are going to very much benefit the exact agencies where the impacts occurred. Well, I don't know. Not it's the sound... agency, the areas is what I meant right, to say. Right, right. I, I don't know. It sounds like the right outcome to me. Randy, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad to talk to you, Rob. It's Public Service Commissioner Randy Crispin. We'll wrap up the show right after this. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. This is the Rob Report on 970 WDAY AM and 93.1 FM. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report, here on 970 WDY AM, 93.1 FM. Jay Thomas Show coming up next, so stay tuned for that, of course. You can call in, 701-293-9000, if you like. Uh, just wrapping the show up here. I, I was just reading this on the commercial break, you know, I, and this, this stuff about the kneeling in the NFL, it's been beat to death. I think it's been blown so far beyond its actual importance that it's it's ridiculous, but this is interesting. Eric Reed, he's a San Francisco uh, 49er safety. Uh, he was one of the, the people who, who started kneeling along with Colin Kaepernick right away when, when the, the national anthem protests began. Uh, he's saying now, according to ESPN, I quote, more than a year since uh, they started the protest, uh, they believe their original message has been lost in translation as nearly every team in the NFL had players participating in some sort of protest on the heels of President Donald Trump's uh, protest about NFL players kneeling during the anthem. Reed and Kaepernick wonder what would have happened had more players joined their cause sooner. Uh, he thinks that he thinks that the weekend's protest was a direct response, obviously, to what the president said. Reed said he wishes that uh, this many people were involved last year. I don't think the narrative would have went in as many directions as it went if we had had more solidarity. Uh, we could have focused in on these issues, but we have got to be pragmatic about it. We have this opportunity now, and it's important that we discuss the issues and make changes. I, I think this is just ridiculous what this guy is saying. Uh, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, they say, well, if more people had kneeled with us to begin with. Uh, you know, we wouldn't have all these distractions. I think the problem is the the method they chose for the protest is inherently distracting, right? I mean, they picked a, a hugely inflammatory way to deliver a message on a complex and controversial issue. Of course, it's a distraction, right? I mean, uh, if I if I if I want to send you uh, uh if, if I want to try to tell you something or try to convince you of something, but I write my message on a naked picture of your mother, of course that's going to be distracting. That's probably the wrong way to deliver you that message. Many many people in this country, including myself, find kneeling during the national anthem to be insulting, disrespectful. Now I want to have a debate about police brutality. 
I think we should. I think we have been having a debate about police brutality. And I think it needs to go a lot further as as bad as things are between the African-American community and the minority community and law enforcement. I think it needs to be even larger than that. Because it's not, it's, 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 those communities probably in, in, undoubtedly feel it more than other demographics. But I think overbearing law enforcement, overly militarized law enforcement is an issue that, that transcends even just that. It is a big, big issue, and we all need to be talking about it, and we all need to be in on the solution. But to say, oh, well, it's so distracting because now everybody's protesting Donald Trump, and it was whatever, bleh. Well, I'm sorry. You picked a horrible way to, to, to send your message. You chose that. That was the wrong way to do it. You made a mistake. Colin Kaepernick made a mistake. If, if, if indeed his motivation, and I, I have some doubt about this, but if indeed his motivation was to talk about police brutality and to raise awareness about it and to start a debate, if that really was what he was after, then he made a mistake by kneeling during the national anthem because he has not started that debate. He started the debate about something. He started a culture war is what he started. It's just It was just the wrong way to do it. It was always the wrong way to do it. This was never going to work out. This was, the, this was a bad tactic from the get-go. Because now we're debating about whether or not it's okay to kneel during the national anthem. And we're debating about Donald Trump. And we're not talking about police brutality, which is a real thing, which is a real problem that is worth debating, that is worth talking about. And they call it Kaepernick himself. I mean, wearing like a Che Guevara shirt, wearing socks that depict cops as pigs. You don't think that's distracting? Like, you can't go out and behave yourself like a disrespectful child and then wonder why everybody gets mad at you and doesn't instead focus on what you're saying. Like, I don't really care what you're saying. You're behaving like a child. So anyway, that's my two cents. I'm I'm just I and I am I am just burned. I don't know how you feel, Natil. I am just burned out on this issue. I don't even want to talk about it anymore. But I saw this over the break and it just set me off. It's just dumb. Yeah, I'm pretty burned out on the whole kneeling during NFL anthems too. I my opinion either have them stay in the locker room, have all the teams stay in the locker room, and just remove them from the the entire situation or something. There's actually the an NFL policy where the field, the teams are supposed to be on the sideline for the national anthem. Yeah, but that didn't start when the NFL started. What? That that policy hasn't been in place for, you know, all of the NFL's history. Well, well it's been in place for a while. Well, a while, but it doesn't have to remain in place. Well, no, I, I mean, it could change, but I, I, and the NFL can do whatever the hell they want. I think the solution is stop watching football. There is still perfectly good baseball being played. Heck no, I'm watching football. <laughs> Uh, the Yankees and Twins, it looks like, are going to square off in the wild card. I'm excited about that. You would I am be. Delighted, I am delighted that the Yankees are playing the Twins because we always beat the Twins in the postseason. Now, yeah, I say that. I should, I should be knocking on wood because it's a one-game playoff, and the Yankees might lose, and then I'll get it from. It's a good thing Johnson's not in here right now. He might just pop through your microphone to strangle you. Yeah, well, I hope, I, you know, that's the nice thing about Twins fans is they're used to it. Ouch. Yeah. Jay Thomas Show. Coming up next, you can always catch me here 12 to 2 p.m. on 970 WDAY AM and 93.1 FM, or, of course, 24 hours a day, seven days a week at SayAnythingBlog.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again.